Disciples Church is a church plant in Canyon, Texas. We are a church without walls that is focused on evangelism and discipleship. We believe that we are saved by Jesus, changed by Jesus, and are on mission with Jesus. Join us as we make disciples verse by verse. Well, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and asked him, Why do John's disciples fast and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. This is God's word. Well, I recently came across an article titled How to Repair Your Your Relationship After Someone Cheats by Daniel Page on NBCNews.com. Um, Danielle had some very interesting things to say in this article. According to her, um, she said, studies show that unfaithfulness in marriage accounts for around 37% of divorces. She also said it's not an easy thing to heal from. But according to a therapist that she studies with, Amanda Mahoney, um, the patients who find success in staying together after someone cheats have one thing in common, one main thing in common. There seems to be a willingness to process through the potential symptoms that, have, that may have contributed to the affair versus solely focusing on the act of the affair itself. Listen, that's not to be confused with justifying the decision to cheat by pointing um, to an issue in, the, in a relationship as an excuse. But, but Danielle does say, if you, are able to, if you are able to get real with your partner on what hasn't been working without playing the blame game, it's a good sign that your relationship has the potential to be repaired. In fact, It may not simply be repaired, but you may also come out even stronger if you handle it the right way. And so Danielle believes in the article, she says, that that an affair may, may, although it may be a very horrible thing, if you handle it the right way, you you may actually come out better and your marriage may be stronger. And Danielle Page and the author of the author of this article consults with several other therapists and they put together a list of things that you should do if you're going to move forward after your spouse has cheated on you. Number one, she says, make sure that there's remorse. There needs to be some deep sense of regret and remorse if you're going to make things better. Number two, um, she said, be honest about what happened and what motivated the affair. Right? Don't blame it on somebody else. Number three, you need to remove temptations and re-engage with the affair. You must separate yourself from temptation. That just makes sense, right? Like if you're cheating on your wife, you can't stay with the girlfriend you're cheating on her with. Right? Number four, um, he says you need to move forward, or she says you need to move forward with brutal honesty and care. You see, lying is betrayal, and the cheater must be um, completely transparent from this point forward. And this article ends with some really, really interesting advice. Danielle says if the marriage is going to get better, then we're going to have to bury the first relationship, and we're going to have to think about starting a brand new one. Well, this morning in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through, 18 through 22, we're going to see a bride who has cheated on her husband, and the bride is going to try to fix things. There will be remorse, there will be honesty, and, and the bride will try to remove temptations, but the groom has come, and he's come forward, with, and he's come forward in brutal honesty. You see, Jesus is going to look his bride in the face, and he's going to say, you can't fix this, but I can. You see, we're going to have to bury the first relationship, and we're going to have to start a brand new one. Church, here is your big idea this morning. 
the groom must die to fix this marriage. The groom must die to fix this marriage. The groom must die for her, but the bride must live for him. You see, Danielle in the article I just quoted said infidelity may actually be the catalyst for a better marriage. See, although the spouse has cheated and, 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 caught and, and, and had an affair, if you handle it the right way, the couple can actually work together and repair what was broken, and as a result, the marriage may be even stronger. You see, a repaired marriage leads to faithfulness in marriage. A repaired marriage leads to faithfulness in the marriage. See, this morning we're going to see a groom who is willing to die for his bride, the bride that has cheated on him. And when you see this, I'm convinced that it will lead you to a greater faithfulness from to him. When you see what it costs the groom to fix this marriage, I'm convinced that you will not want to cheat on him again. You see, a few weeks ago, um, after the story of the leper, I, I told you that there would be four very similar encounters with Jesus, and in each of those encounters, the, the scene would be set, a conflict would happen between Jesus and the religious leaders, and then Jesus would respond with a shocking statement that would reveal exactly who he is and what he has come to do. And this morning, we're going to see that. Jesus is the groom who must die to fix his broken marriage. The big idea again is this, the groom must die to fix his marriage. The groom must die for her, but the bride must live for him. And so far, Jesus has been questioned about his authority to forgive sins, and he has proved that he has the authority to forgive sins because he has the authority and the power to heal the paralyzed man. And then he was questioned about him eating with the sinners and tax collectors instead of following the traditions of the Pharisees, which was to remain separate from sinners. Instead, he redefined holiness, and he kept himself separate from sin, but not the sinner. You see, he went after the sinner, and he went to their table, and he used the sinner's table to train his disciples. And now, a third controversy is on the rise. This time, there will be fighting over fasting. Should his disciples fast? And Jesus will respond with another shocking statement. You see, the scene will be set for us in verses 18 through 20, and that will also reveal the source of conflict. And then Jesus will respond with two parables that are meant to show us how to respond to Jesus in faithfulness. You see, this text was given to us through the heart and pen of Mark to teach us who Jesus is which, and then how we are to respond to him. You see, he's the groom. Right, and he died to fix this marriage. And the groom, the groom must die for her, but, but we must live for him. And so this morning, we're going to learn exactly how we are to respond to, to what Jesus has done for us. You see, Jesus will justify us by his death, but that act of justification and reconciliation is the very thing that should cause you to be faithful to him. You see, we will need to be faithful. You see, Jesus the groom will die for his bride, the church, and the proper response to him is to be faithful. You must be faithful to the groom who has died for you. You see, faith is to faithfulness as a marriage is to vows, as justification is to sanctification. When you have faith, that is seen in your faithfulness. And when you have a marriage, that is seen by how you keep your vows. And likewise, when you are saved or justified, it is seen by how you keep the commandments. Right, we don't keep the commandments in order to be saved, and we don't remain faithful in order to have faith. And we don't keep our vows just because, because we want to be married. No, it's the other way around. We have faith, therefore we, they, our, faithfulness, our faith is seen in our faithfulness. And we are married, and that is seen how we keep our vows. And, and we are justified by Christ alone, and that is seen in how we are faithful to him. So let us begin this morning by examining the scene. Look with me at verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and asked him, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? You see, here's the question. Why don't your disciples fast, Jesus? 
Well, perhaps if we're going to understand this text, we need to first ask the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees, why are you fasting? Like, really, why are they fasting? Like, if you search through your Bibles to find the answer, you might end up lost and you may end up at the wrong conclusion. You may think this is a reference to fasting on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, but that is not likely. Instead, we need to learn to look forward and backwards in the scriptures to find our answer. You see, first of all, in Jesus' day, there were two kinds of fasts. There were public fasts and there were private fasts. Public fasts were mandatory for everyone. The Day of Atonement would have been a public fast, and so everyone would have fasted together. But from our context, we can see that the disciples of John are fasting and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but not everyone is fasting. And so this must have been a private fast, not a public fast. So why are they fasting, and why is it so offensive that, the Jesus, that Jesus' disciples are not fasting? Why do the, the Pharisees fast, and when do they fast? Well, according to Luke chapter 18, verse 12, we learn that the Pharisees fast twice a week. But why? You see, private fasts were mandatory for all people, but history tells us that at least 200 years before this event, private fasts became very important to the Jewish people, especially to those who were extremely zealous for the laws of God, like the Pharisees. You see, these zealous men wanted to be used by God, and so they would fast for two days a week on Mondays and Thursdays. Some say they picked Monday and Thursday because they didn't run up against the Sabbath and it gave them time to rest and and, and remain healthy um, in between the fast. But according to tradition, the Pharisees fasted on the the fifth day of the week on Thursday because that was the day that Moses ascended Mount Sinai. And they also fasted on Monday, the second day of the week, because that was the day that Moses descended from Mount Sinai. And this story before us has much to do with that mountain. You see, it was on that mountain that God became the groom, the husband of his wife Israel. It was on that mountain that God took a people to himself and gave himself to them. But that's not all. You see, the Pharisees took special pride in their, in their standing before God, and the people, listen, the people in Israel valued the fasting of the Pharisees because they saw, they saw it as a way to turn God's wrath away from the Jewish people and their nation. You see, the Jewish people would honor the Pharisees and the disciples of other rabbis when they fasted because they thought that they were earning God's favor for them and protection for them because of their fasting. You see, when Moses fasted, the wrath of God was turned away from the people. And so these zealous men were just copying the example of Moses. And so tradition tells us that the Jewish people honored these holy men who fasted because they thought that God's wrath would be turned away from them as a nation because of their, the holy men's fasting. And so they fasted on Monday and on Thursday because of what happened on Mount Sinai. You see, when God became the groom of his bride, the Jewish people admit everything to them. Monday and Thursday. So why would these men fast? Well, these men believed that fasting had the power to atone for sin. They believed that, that they believed that as they fasted, God's wrath would be turned away from the people, and, they, and this would prevent natural disasters from happening and other nations from attacking. And they honored these holy men who fasted because they thought that through their fasting, God would turn his wrath away from him. Listen, they knew that they had sinned against God, their groom. The marriage needed to be repaired. And so the holy men fasted and tried to fix this marriage. And according to ancient Jewish writings, like, like think about this, a rabbi named Zadok who lived about 50 AD, he fasted every Monday and Thursday for 40 years in order to prevent Jerusalem from being destroyed, and the people loved him for it. You see, the Jewish people at the time believed that if things were going to go well for them, it was because these holy men fasted on their behalf, and therefore, God would turn his wrath away from them.
And so now you can almost feel the sincerity of these people when they ask Jesus, listen, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? Notice it's not the people who are fasting who are asking Jesus why they're not fasting. It's the people. It's the normal Jewish people. It's the nation who are asking Jesus the question, why aren't your disciples fasting? You see, they knew that Jesus was righteous, and no doubt they genuinely genuinely wanted to know, why aren't you fasting? Why aren't they fasting? Because if you fast, you can protect us, protect us from the wrath of God. But what they didn't know was the groom was standing right in front of them. And he was about to repair this marriage for good. See, God was standing right there in front of them. And his wrath over their sin was about to be put to death. You see, his, he has led, this, his compassion for his bride has led him to putting on human flesh to fix the marriage forever. And so in the typical rabbinical mode, he, he goes on to answer their question with a question. You see, the question will reveal who he is and what he has come to do. Look at verse 19. Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom, listen, the groom is in front of them. And as long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. You you see, this statement may not shock you, but it definitely shocked them. So you see, Jesus was claiming in this statement to be the groom, and this would have been such a big deal. You see, in order to understand the weight of this statement, you need to know your Bible as well, because God and God alone is the only one in Scripture who has ever had that title. God alone is the groom, and his bride is the chosen people Israel. You see, early in chapter 1, I told you that they knew their scripture so well that they would answer questions with questions, and they would reference themes and ideas from scripture that would cause things to, to, to come into the mind of the original reader. And see, whenever Jesus answers this question by using the title groom, they would have immediately thought back to Mount Sinai, where God first identified himself as their groom. You see, they were fasting to fix the relationship that had been broken between the groom and the bride on Monday and Thursday. And they were fasting to fix this problem because they know that they were not faithful to God. And see, in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, listen to to the way that God spoke to these people. In Exodus 6, verse 7, God told the Jewish people, he said, I will take you as my people. The language that he is using in Exodus 6, verse 7 is the same language that Jacob used when he took Rebecca to be his wife. This promise in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7 is actually God proposing to his bride. He is saying, I'm going to take you and you're going to be mine and I'm going to be yours and I'm going to give you everything, but you must remain faithful. You know the story. Like, you know the story of Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. You know they won't remain faithful. And so God's wrath will turn against them. But now the groom has come. And he has come not in wrath. You see, he has come and he has found his spouse cheating on him, but he's not here in wrath. He's here to fix and repair the damage that has been done. There are so many parallels in this text. Why are they fasting on Mondays and Thursdays? Well, because on Thursday, Moses ascended to Mount Sinai where the wedding began. And then on Tuesday, he descended, I'm sorry, on Monday, he descended the mountain and he caught them cheating on their honeymoon. They were worshiping the golden calf. It didn't even take a week. You see, Thursday reminded, Thursday was reminding them of how the marriage began, how God saved them out of slavery and he brought them to himself. He gave them everything. He gave them himself. And then Monday would remind them of their infidelity because they chose to cheat on their groom. And there would be major, major consequences for their infidelity. For the rest of the Old Testament, you will see the chosen bride of God continue to cheat on him over and over and over again, which means so much more than you can imagine. 
During this time, see, a, Jew a Jewish woman in history couldn't own anything unless they were married. And if they got caught cheating on their husband, the husband could divorce them and send them away. And this was a very real object lesson for them. Listen, because of their infidelity, because of their infidelity, the very presence of God would be removed from them. From them. You see, at this time in Jewish history, women weren't allowed to own any kind of property, and so she would be sent away in absolute, in the worst state ever, she would have nothing. This was a very real and hard lesson for the people of God to learn because of their unfaithfulness, because they were cheating on him, they, because they, they broke their marriage covenant, they ran the risk of losing him. And so when Moses ascended on Mount Sinai, Moses ascended up Mount Sinai on Thursday, God was giving the people something that they could never possess on their own. He was giving himself to them. And when Moses descended on Monday and he caught them cheating, they suffered the consequences of their unfaithfulness. And so the people of God developed a tradition of fasting on Monday and Thursday as a way of remaining faithful to God. And so their leaders would fast on Mondays and Thursdays as a way of turning the wrath of God away from them. And so hear me. When Jesus opens his mouth in verse 19, when he, when he opens his mouth and he calls himself the, the groom, they should have immediately understood that he was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be God. Either Listen, either Jesus is the groom and he is God, or he's absolutely crazy. But he can't be both. He can't be just a man and be the groom. You see, he must be God. You see, the groom was standing right in front of them. God was standing right in front of them. The very presence of God was with him, was with the people in Exodus chapter 6. Listen, in, in Exodus chapter 13, we find out that God, the very presence of God, as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, went with them. And then in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 11, his glory filled the temple. Like his glory filled the temple. He was with them. But because of their unfaithfulness, God, through the mouth of Jeremiah, warned them. He said, has this house which bears my name. It's kind of interesting, right, how in a marriage we take the name of our groom. Right? He says, has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers? Yes, I have seen it too, God says. And then in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 15, he says, he warns them. He says, I will banish you from my presence. And then in Ezekiel chapter 10, it begins with the image of the living cherubim carrying God's throne. You see, in the glory and the presence of God begins to move. It's in the holy of holies, but then it begins to move toward the threshold. The bride has cheated on the groom and the groom is walking out. And in Ezekiel chapter 11, the glory of God leaves the east gate. The groom is gone. The groom has left. The bride has cheated on him for the last time. Enough is enough. And he leaves them. And so the people mourn. They mourn and they fast. And then they begin to experience what life is like without their groom. But there was a promise in Ezekiel chapter 11. Listen, the, the promise was that the, that the groom would return. He would return and he would bring the bride back to himself. And as he returned, listen, they didn't even understand it. But right here he has returned. The groom is back. And he is standing right in front of them. Listen, let me ask you a question. Does this call for fasting or feasting? 
Does this call for sorrow or rejoicing? Does this call for a wedding or a funeral? You see, fasting would be completely appropriate at a funeral, but when you're standing in the presence of the groom who has returned, fasting is not the appropriate response. And that's exactly what he's drawing their attention to. Listen, Jesus' disciples are not fasting right now because the groom is with them. The groom has returned. The groom is back, and he's going to fix their infidelity. He's going to fix their cheating. He's going to call them back to himself. But listen, you need to hear what he's about to say. You need to understand what's happening. You you cannot fix your unfaithfulness to God by fasting. That's what he's saying. It's going to take all that the groom has to save you. The groom must die to fix this marriage. The groom must go to the grave to fix this marriage. You see, Jesus, with absolute clarity is driving home this point with his parables. Listen, look at verses 21 and 22. No one, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old garment and a worse tear is made. And no one, no one can put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost. No, new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Jesus, with absolute clarity, is saying this. You cannot sow a little bit of fasting onto your life to fix, your, fix the problem you have with God. It doesn't work. You, you cannot sow a little bit of religious performance onto your life in order to turn the wrath of God away from you. You already have cheated. You already deserve the wrath of God. You have already broken your vows. You have already cheated. Listen, you've abused the name that he's given you. And you cannot undo infidelity. Once it's done, it's done. You've been caught. The groom must die if he's going to fix this marriage. Fasting will not save you. And see, Jesus is driving home the point. Jesus has come to redeem the bride and he, that has cheated on him. And how far will he have to go to fix this problem? Will he have to fast? No, you need to see what he's actually going to have to do. Look at verse 20. Oh my, look at verse 20. We are about to stand on holy ground. Listen to this. But the time will come, the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. You see, you cannot sow a little bit of fasting or Bible reading or prayer onto your life to fix your unfaithfulness. No, the groom must be taken away. Only that will turn the wrath of God away from you. It does not matter how much you fast, go to church, read your Bible, or pray. It does not matter. That will not turn the wrath of God away from you. Jesus will have to die for his bride. That is the point of this text. You see, in just a few verses, we go from, we go from the return of the groom to a funeral. Jesus is going to show us exactly what he must do to save his unfaithful bride. The groom must be killed to fix this marriage. And the groom has come to do that. The groom has come to to die for his unfaithful bride, to turn the wrath of God away from us. You see, Moses ascended the mountain on Thursday to begin the wedding ceremony between God and his people. And when he descended the mountain, he caught them cheating. You see, God is no fool. Like he uses marriage imagery to show us just of how much he loves us. So you see, Jesus said, in effect, I love the church. I love my bride so much that I will do anything to redeem them. I will do anything to save them. And Paul captures this in in 1 Corinthians when he said, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You are not your own, church. You were bought with the blood of Christ. And now Jesus will ascend a mountain called Calvary and he will spill his blood to join the bride to himself in marriage forever. 
Because he knew. You see, because he knew what it would cost to turn the wrath of God away from his love, the church. No amount of fasting would ever fix this. And many commentators believe that Jesus in Mark chapter 20 verse 20 is actually capturing the first mention of the gospel from his mouth. It will cost him his life to save his bride. And so who is Jesus? Well, he's the groom who died for his bride. And how are we to respond to him? How are we now to respond to this groom who has died to redeem us for our unfaithfulness? Well, church, let me be very, very clear. This is how you're to respond to him. You see, the love language that Jesus speaks is obedience. You see, for the church that he died for, the love language that he speaks is obedience. Remember that faith without faithfulness is like a marriage without vows. It doesn't make any sense to get married and not take any vows. And it doesn't make any sense to have faith without faithfulness. Listen, in John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus told his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commands. If you love me, you will keep my commands. I loved you. Right? With every marriage comes vows, and with every faith comes faithfulness. Let us be very, very, very clear. You cannot be saved by keeping commands. Right? You cannot sow a little bit of command keeping onto your, onto your life in order for God to save you. No, the groom must die for you. But if he's died for you, then the way we show our love to him is by keeping his commands. You see, if you love him, if you love your wife, you remain faithful to your wife. You don't cheat on her. And if you love God, if you love Jesus, right? like the love language that he speaks is obedience. Jesus will return. Listen, this is such an amazing parallel, but oddly enough, the path that God left the temple in Ezekiel chapter 11, he left through the east gate and he descended into heaven. And in the same way, Jesus will return to the east gate and he will come into the temple and he will redeem his people. Whenever Moses descended from Mount Sinai, he found his bride, the bride of God, cheating. You see, and luckily for us, Jesus left his bride with these instructions, with several instructions about how to remain faithful to him. See, Moses gave instructions to the bride of God on the mountain. He gave them the Ten Commandments. That was their wedding vows, right? And Jesus likewise gave his bride, the disciples, (laughs) the, the wedding vows. He gave them the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we don't have a lot of time to dive into this, but I want to give you a little picture of what it looks like to be faithful to your, your groom, Jesus, Right. I want you to look at what, what, we want to look at a couple things. We want to look at maybe very specifically what fasting looks like in the Sermon on the Mount. Like this text is about fasting, and so we might as well pivot a little bit and understand what fasting looks like and how that is remaining faithful to your groom. In, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, in the Sermon on the Mount, the instructions to the bride, Jesus gave this commandment to his disciples. He said, whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites. Notice that he says whenever you fast. He doesn't say if you fast. He says whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites. Now let me ask you a question. Why did Jesus' disciples not fast in Mark chapter 2? Well, it's because they were with God. They were with the groom. It would have been like totally inappropriate for them to fast at the wedding. Right, but there was coming a day when they, whenever he would be taken away from them, and soon, very soon, the one who loved them, the one who redeemed them, the one who turned God's wrath away from them, he would be taken away from them. And Mark chapter 2, verse 20 says, on that day they would fast. Listen, it's very normal for those who are undergoing extreme amounts of stress to fast. If you have ever lost a loved one, like it's probably very difficult for you to eat that day. Right? If your spouse has ever cheated on you and you know what infidelity feels like, it's probably very hard for you to eat. 
under extreme amounts of suffering and stress and anguish. It's very, very difficult to eat. And on that Wednesday, whenever Jesus was led away from them, whenever he was arrested, do you think the disciples were under extreme amounts of suffering? No doubt. Right? The one who meant everything to them that was led away in chains. What do you think happened on Friday when they watched him get crucified? Do you think they ate? No. For the one who has come to redeem them, the one who has come close, the groom who is with them is now very far away. He is, in not, he is no longer in the land of the living. You see, on those days they would fast, on Wednesdays and Fridays. The groom would be taken away from them on Wednesday night and he would be killed on a Friday. He, the, the, the bride the bride would suffer the loss, like they would lose their groom, and it would hurt very, very badly. You see, less than 100 years after Jesus returned to heaven, the early disciples started circulating a, doc- a document called the Didache. And this is basically just a short essay like a, a, to follow, like a discipleship manual or, or, or some instructions about how to practically follow Jesus. Listen, they didn't have the, the ability and the resources to print Bibles and circulate them for everyone, and so they printed a very small discipleship manual called the Didache. And what is really interesting about that document, it's really short, you can read it in about 10 minutes, but in chapter 8 of that document, this is what it says. It says, but let not your fasts be like the hypocrites, for they fast on the second day and the fifth day of the week. They fast on Monday and Thursday. Rather, fast on the fourth day and the day of preparation. Fast on Wednesday and Friday. Listen, this is what the Didache was trying to show. When Jesus was taken, when he was taken away, when he was arrested on Wednesday, and when his life was taken away on Friday, they fasted. You see, it appears that the early followers of Jesus fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays because that was the day that Jesus, the groom, was taken away from them. That's what it cost for the wrath of God to be turned away from them. And so, listen, they're not trying to earn forgiveness. They're just trying to remain faithful to the sacrifice that their groom made for them. They want to obey his teachings. And so whenever he taught them in Matthew chapter 6 to fast, he said, whenever you do fast, don't do it like the hypocrites. Don't do it on Mondays and Thursdays. Right? Jesus was taking something old and he was moving it into something new. He was showing them that only the wrath, the wrath of God can only be turned away if the groom dies for you. So, so church, let me ask you a question. How are we to apply this text? Well, first of all, you need to understand that you cannot sow a little bit of fasting onto your life in order to be saved. Listen, we are only saved because the groom has died for us. We are not saved by Jesus plus fasting. We are not saved by Jesus plus anything. The only thing that will turn the wrath of God away from you is the groom must die for you. You see, we are saved by faith alone, but with faith comes faithfulness, just as a marriage comes with vows. The love language that Jesus speaks is obedience. Therefore, we should do everything we can to obey him. And so if you don't understand the obedience that Jesus is calling his bride to, you need to run to Matthew chapter 5-7 through and study it with everything you have, wrestle it, and learn to obey it. See, Jesus revealed himself as the groom, and he paid the price for his bride, and he wants his bride to remain faithful. Sometimes you don't understand what that obedience is, but that shouldn't keep us from doing it. See, Jesus fulfilled the covenant, and now he calls his disciples to remain faithful to that marriage covenant. Let me give you a few practical applications. Should we obey Jesus? Simple question. Should we obey Jesus? Well, the answer is obvious. Yes. Now, we don't obey and perform in order to be saved, right? We don't don't do that. We're already saved. Like, we're saved by him. But we must do everything that we can because we love him. We love him. 
He died for us. Like he, we love him and we want to be, we want to be with him. We want to, and so through obedience, we draw near to him. And so should we follow the example of the early disciples and fast on Wednesdays and Fridays? Maybe, right? Like as I study the text, my heart is drawn to it because I, I feel like, man, if he died for me, if he did that for me, whatever he calls me to obey, I want to obey it. And so if Jesus is calling me to fast on Wednesdays and Fridays, I think that's an appropriate thing and I want to obey him. And, and as I wrestle with this, and honestly, church, I haven't, I haven't landed on something very clear. I know we're called to fast. I'm not sure if it's on Wednesdays and Fridays. I'm starting to think that may be true. Because as I studied this, I started seeing that I wasn't the only one thinking this way. And perhaps you're familiar with the story of John Wesley, right? John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist Church, and he followed this pattern as well. Like, he actually taught that, that we as disciples of Jesus should be radically committed to obeying everything that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. See, I thought it was crazy when I first started thinking about that. But John Wesley did this way before I even thought about it. You see, John Wesley actually said in a sermon, he said to not fast was to not be a Christian. You see, John Wesley in sermon number 27, it's called Upon the Lord's Sermon on the Mount, Discourse 7, he taught that as he taught, he taught that that to, to not fast was to not be Christian. And so John Wesley taught as he followed the ancient Christian he he followed, he followed the ancient Christian practice of fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays. Wesley believed Wesley believed that Jesus was assuming that his, his disciples would fast. In Matthew 16 verse 16 he he believes that it should be read as a command. He believes that it should be read as Jesus wrote the you know as Jesus you communicated that when you fast and not if you fast. Um, he said there and he thought it was a command. We are called to fast. Now, we need to study a little bit to figure out when we should fast, but, but listen, church, therefore, John Wesley argued something very, very important. He said fasting is at the core of Christian practice. You see, he was very dedicated to following Jesus in obedience and specifically in the Sermon on the Mount. And so, listen, church, we're not alone. The Methodist church was built on this movement. We do not obey and perform in order to be saved. We do not. You cannot sow a little bit of obedience onto your life in order for God to save you. No, the groom must die for you. But if he has saved you, he is calling you to obedience. He's calling you to be faithful. And so the question remains, is fasting a command? Well, well, the early disciples believed that it was, and, and John Wesley obviously believed that it was. And so if after examining the scriptures you decide to pursue fasting, let me give you a couple of warnings. Let me give you a couple of thoughts to think through, right? Fasting is kind of new to our generation. We've kind of lost that. And and so in the next few weeks, I'll I'll be coming out with a full teaching over fasting because I think it's very important. I think it's very essential, but you need to understand a couple of things. We cannot sow a little bit of fasting onto our life to earn favor with God. Hear me very, very, very carefully. You are not going to earn or merit salvation by your fasting. First of all, you need to know this. Let your fasting be done to the Lord, right? Fix your eyes on him. Seek him through fasting. And listen, church, don't seek the praise of men when you fast. A lot of people do that. When they fast, they want to draw attention to themselves. The Pharisees were doing that here in in Mark chapter 2. They were drawing attention to themselves, right? We don't want to do that. And number two, you need to be very, 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 very clear on this. Do not be fooled. You cannot earn anything or merit anything from God from your fasting, Fasting will not save you, but maybe fasting will draw you closer to your to your groom. Okay, and third, stay humble. Like if you're going to do a public fast or a private fast, we need to be very, very careful to exercise the attitudes that betray a broken and humble heart, not a heart full of pride, right? Like 
it's a really wicked and evil thing when we start fasting and our pride gets elevated. Instead, we should be in humility fasting and saying, listen, it took the death of God to save us. Right, I can't save myself by fasting, but I fast so I can draw closer to him. And so that is, so listen, fasting, really fasting isn't even the main point of Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, which is why I will give you a whole other teaching on fasting soon. The main point of Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22 is this. The groom must die to fix this broken marriage. The groom must die for her. You cannot fast in order to save yourself. You cannot obey in order to save yourself. And Jesus is being very, very, very clear here. The groom must die to fix his marriage. But church, that does, that does call for a response from us. Right? The groom must die for us, but we must live for him. So how are we going to live for him? The love language that Jesus speaks is obedience. Thank you for listening to this message. If you would like to know more about Jesus, the gospel, discipleship, or Disciples Church, you can contact me at ChristopherHogue at Yahoo.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R-H-O-G-U-E at Yahoo.com. Church, we have been sent into the world to make disciples. Let's go make disciples.